racism is just a very different type of structural inequity compared to other types of structural inequities. Mm -hmm. And I think in our country in particular, that's probably because it was baked into the system. Income and poverty and household wealth and financial Mm -hmm. strain, they differ based on race in our country by design, right? Mm -hmm. There were financial systems set up very early on in our country to perpetuate enslavement. And that then created these very profound racial disparities. Welcome to the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing podcast, Aging Fast and Slow. This podcast is supported by the National Institute on Aging Pioneer Award. Thanks for listening. We are Dr. Sarah Zanton and Dr. Deidre Cruz, your hosts. For anyone new to our podcast, we speak with scientists, policy experts, and innovators to better understand aging across the life course with a special emphasis on the sustained impact of racism in health, the impact this has over the life course, and what can be done to tackle these inequalities. Today, we welcome Dr. Laura Samuel, whose deep expertise offers insight into the complex web of factors that shape health. Dr. Samuel's profound commitment to tackling socioeconomic disparities have been a driving force throughout her career. Dr. Laura Samuel's expertise in addressing socioeconomic disparities offers profound insights that contribute to the broader dialogue on health equity. In this episode, we delve into the intricate web of socioeconomic factors that influence health outcomes and uncover the transformative potential of Dr. Samuel's work in reshaping the landscape of health disparities. Welcome, Dr. Samuel. Thank you. So let's jump right in. How do you see your research on socioeconomic disparities intersecting with the broader lens of structural racism? And how do you navigate the complex dynamics that arise from the intersection of those two critical areas? Yeah, so my work really has focused exclusively on socioeconomic status, which, as you know, overlaps a lot with racism and ableism and ageism and many other structural inequities. And I conceptualize it based on Zinzi Bailey's conceptual framework of racism and that socioeconomic conditions are considered to be a key pathway by which racism influences health. Mm -hmm. And so I tend to think of it in that way as one of several mechanisms. And I think it's really a key one. You know, the, the edict study in particular here in Baltimore showed that many health disparities based on race are dramatically attenuated when you account for socioeconomic conditions. Mm-hmm. But I'm also really aware that it's not the only one, and there are many right. other mechanisms, right, that are completely unrelated to economic and financial pathways. And so I kind of think of it that way as one piece of a much broader mm-hmm. puzzle. Mm-hmm. Great. And just for our listeners who don't know the EDIC study, could you explain to the audience? Yeah. So the EDIC study was designed to recruit people from low-income, middle-income, and high-income communities, but importantly in communities that were racially integrated. So they identified here in Baltimore low-income communities that were racially integrated, Mm -hmm. and they found that comparing people who were all low-income and also had fairly high rates of chronic conditions like hypertension and obesity, but lived in the same conditions, we actually didn't see the same dramatic racial disparities in those outcomes that we tend to see at a national level. Yeah. 
-hmm. And racial integration, as probably most of the listeners of this podcast know, is pretty rare. Right. And so they selectively kind of tried to identify communities in which that was naturally occurring so they could see kind of when you account for that, what what happens. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of times when we say we're you know measuring race we're actually measuring where people are living yeah, yeah. yeah. i think of right. edict as the place not right. race a sort right. of story right. is, is right. kind of came from that yeah that's great so um can you discuss with us sort of how your work in understanding socioeconomic disparities is enhanced by thinking about the and addressing the ways in which structural racism perpetuates and exacerbates those disparities within some of the communities that i know you focused on yeah so I really have done a lot of collaborative work with people like Bonnie Sweenor, who focuses on disability-based disparities and ableism, and also collaborated with a lot of people who focus more on racism and racial disparities. In these collaborations, it's really become so keenly obvious to me that racism is just a very different type of structural inequity compared to other other types of structural inequities. Mm -hmm. And I think in our country in particular, that's probably because it was baked into the system, right? That that especially the financial things that I'm looking at, like income and poverty and household wealth and financial mm -hmm. strain, they differ based on race in our country by design, right? Mm -hmm. That there were financial systems set up very early on in our country to perpetuate enslavement and that that then created these very profound racial differences, like the racial wealth gap in our country comparing blacks and whites is six yeah. to one, right? Yeah. And so whites in our country have six times higher wealth resources compared to families who are black. And although that disparity has actually decreased since mm -hmm. emancipation when blacks were finally able to start to own property, it actually has plateaued since the 1980s and, in fact, mm -hmm. has widened a little bit. Hmm. So as much as we like to think in our society that these racial inequalities are just an artifact of history, the data shows that it's right. very much not, and it's very much something that we're doing now. And so, you know, I really think that it's baked into our policies and the financial systems and the way that they're set up that create economic inequalities. And there's a therefore a real need to understand that lens when I'm doing this research to understand not just what the economic inequalities are, but why they're there in the first place. Sure. Well, and throughout time, when black wealth has been amassed, it's been often taken away from, yeah. you know, yeah. by white people, like thinking about like Tulsa, like Tulsa mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. black farms in Mississippi. And, mm -hmm. you know, that it, it's not just, oh, that was slavery. And now we've we've moved on. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in your current research, you examine the pathways linking low income and financial strain to physiologic aging. Can you explain how these pathways may be influenced by structural racism and systemic inequities? Yeah. So I'll give you an example, which is that several of my studies have looked at the SNAP program, formerly known as food stamps. So this is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, right, mm -hmm. that provides critical food assistance to low income households. And the SNAP benefits are, are calculated based on income and household size, but they don't necessarily factor in cost of living. Mm -hmm. And so there's some research that showed, you know, that there's differences in cost of living depending on where you live. And we know that 
people who are African-American are disproportionately more likely to live in areas of food deserts, where the cost, therefore, of acquiring food is not dependent based just on the food prices, but also the cost of transportation to those areas mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the time cost of getting to food resources. And so in reality, although some people might have the same economic resources, i.e. the same SNAP benefits, mm -hmm. they may not really go as far mm -hmm. for everyone depending on the contextual factors in which they live their daily lives. You know, another example are the work requirements, right, for SNAP, which mm -hmm. has actually been in the news a lot right. lately, yeah. you know, because they increased or expanded work requirements as part of the debt ceiling negotiations over the summer. Yeah. And so there's also research out there that shows that those work requirements likely disproportionately affect certain groups of people. And that group includes people who experience racism in the workplace, right? Mm. And so then these factors all fit together, mm -hmm. right? If you're creating disproportionate barriers in the workplace mm -hmm. and disproportionate barriers within SNAP, then there's going to be synergy right. between that. That will have probably an exponential effect on certain subgroups. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I would think all of those are true on tribal lands as well. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, the food insecurity rates in certain tribal controlled areas are very high, partly because of poverty, but also partly because of geographic access. Right. right? Yeah. So I know one of the DNP students that I worked with here. So DNP is a doctor of nursing practice student, uh, lives in a remote Alaskan community and was telling me that she would have to pay $20 for a watermelon. Wow. That just like the, the access to fresh right. fruits and vegetables is nearly non-existent in certain communities mm -hmm. because of the cost of, of getting food there. Right. Yeah, just it just makes you reimagine sort of the cost of food, that it's not it's not just the price that's on on the food on the in, in, in right. the market, right? But all of those other factors I think are really key to think about. So what we found with our other guests is that really everyone has kind of a reason or something that brought them to the work that they're doing now. And we'd love if you would share with us what has brought you to this work. Yeah. So my interest in these things really started early on. You know, my family didn't have a lot of financial resources. We lived in a trailer for a number of years mm -hmm. and relied on free and reduced price lunches and other food assistance. And so I think I learned really early on that some people could just work really hard. Uh, you know, my dad always had two jobs, but with six kids, it didn't get very far. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and still not have enough to make ends meet, that there were structural factors mm -hmm. out there, right? Yeah. And that the idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps is really, for some people, more an American legend than a mm -hmm. reality of life here. Mm. And so I don't know that I had the language necessarily early in my life to understand how that affected my parents' health, but but certainly as I then became a nurse practitioner and started to work with people more broadly and understood the physiology and the health consequences that occur because of stress, mm -hmm. started to be able to conceptualize what was happening and the role that that plays. Mm -hmm. And so I think that all kind of combined and culminated to me wanting to go back and do research and try to address these things right. in a meaningful way. We're so glad That's you good. did. Yes, <laughs> yes we are. <laughs> so your your research is very policy related mm -hmm. and it impacts policy. People cite it in policies and you investigate the impact of policies also. So you're kind of at the front end and the back end of policy research, which is so important. And I wonder if you could tell our listeners about the recent research you've done about SNAP gap, both racially and by disability. Yeah. So 
This work, again, came out of my collaboration with Bonnie Swainor, and we were really interested in looking at uh, whether participation in the SNAP program could actually reduce disparities in food insecurity. So we initially looked at disability-based disparities. You know, people with disability have very high rates of food insecurity, usually triple that of the general population. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to compare people who were able to receive SNAP benefits to those who didn't and see if SNAP participation appears at least in kind of observational studies to have some evidence of attenuating the disparities. And so we were able to find less of a disparity among households that participate in the SNAP program, comparing mm -hmm. households that include someone with a disability to those who didn't. And to us, that suggests that, you know, that SNAP participation is meaningful. There's lots of other research out there that shows that SNAP participation can, in fact, reduce food insecurity mm -hmm. by as much as 30 percent for low-income households. So it's a dramatic difference. The challenge is that SNAP enrollment can be sometimes a very cumbersome process, right. Right? Yeah. that people have to fill out forms. They sometimes need to go through an interview. And so... We also have done some other work to evaluate the accessibility of the programs across many states and found that they really differ dramatically in terms of how accessible the enrollment process is, right? Okay. Whether they have uh, assistance lines that provide support mm -hmm. for people with hearing impairment or mm -hmm. provide assistance to people with cognitive impairment or so forth. So we think that those things likely are driving some of the mm -hmm. barriers to SNAP enrollment right. that could benefit people. And then kind of as a separate but related study, we also looked at racial disparities, mm -hmm. right? Which, as you said, I think there's probably different mechanisms at play when you look at ableism versus racism, but there's a lot of overlap yeah. as well in terms mm -hmm. of how it affects people because there's also racial disparities in disability status mm -hmm. as well. Right. So sometimes we're talking about some of this very same right. people. The intersections. Of yeah. And so in that paper, we looked at racial disparities among those who were on SNAP and among those who were not on SNAP, but mm -hmm. all the low-income populations. So these people should have all been eligible mm -hmm. for SNAP benefits. Yeah. And we found actually that there were racial disparities in food insecurity among those who didn't use SNAP. Mm -hmm. But among those who did use SNAP, there was no evidence of racial disparities. And in fact, the predominantly black households actually had lower rates of food insecurity compared to white households. And yeah. so, you know, I think that that, again, is really strong evidence that, that suggests that the program is really helpful mm -hmm. to reduce food insecurity. And we just need to find ways of improving access. Because it's an entitlement. It's, it's an entitlement. Right. You're entitled and, to receive right. it. And yet participation rates can be very low. Right. Um, you know, especially for older adults, less than half of older adults who are eligible for SNAP actually enroll in the program. Mm. Yeah. So for certain groups of people, these barriers right. and application processes are so much, and the stigma as well, so much mm -hmm. that they don't actually successfully right. get the benefits. Right. Hmm. What you raised just made me wonder about your thoughts on the process by which people get signed up. So, mm -hmm. you know, it occurs to me that some of those same groups are interacting with the healthcare system a mm -hmm. lot, especially in the case of people with disabilities. Yeah. And, and to some extent, a lot of older adults are going to be interacting with the healthcare system. What have you come across as far as the healthcare setting as a place where people are being identified as needing the SNAP benefit and being then connected or having their enrollment facilitated and sort of where, where do you see opportunities there? That is an excellent question. 
And one that is like, there's so many layers to it. You know, so the first step is identifying people who would benefit from that. And so, you know, there's been a, a large push to increase food insecurity screeners and other screeners for social needs in clinical settings. And I think they are increasingly being implemented, but the challenge is nobody quite knows what to do with that information right. okay. yeah. and how to, how to best address it. Because there are many people who are well-trained in helping people walk through the application process. You know, social workers and case managers mm-hmm. and service coordinators are, are used to helping people navigate that process, but they're not often within a clinical setting. Right. Right? They're not based in a, in a hospital or clinic. And so we're trying to push more services outside of healthcare settings anyway, mm-hmm. and we have existing resources, which admittedly are often underfunded and undersupported. Yeah. And so what we really need is to build up those services and integrate ties with the healthcare setting to help people get linked into the services that they need. Mm-hmm. Does that mm-hmm. answer your question? Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> and so in some of your research, you've documented that SNAP can help prevent hospitalizations and nursing home utilization. Mm-hmm. And yet you just mentioned that there's a lot of undersigning and like underuse. Can you say a little bit more for our listeners about the interplay between, you know, financial strain and SNAP and, and aging and healthcare utilization to the extent to which you think that your research sheds a light on that? We know that financial strain increases people's likelihood of acquiring costly conditions, mm-hmm. right, that require health care. It triggers stress response. It's associated with unmet needs like food insecurity and housing insecurity, and cost-related medication non-adherence, right? And then the, all of those pathways mm-hmm. then ultimately lead toward disease outcomes. Mm-hmm. And we have a whole body of literature around that, mm-hmm. some of which I've done and other people, right? And so the challenge is then how to address that, how to kind of intervene. And so some of our work has looked at SNAP, some of that work that you know very well, (laughs) (laughs) that has evaluated whether SNAP participation can actually reduce healthcare utilization. And a lot of that healthcare utilization is potentially preventable, right? Mm -hmm, People who are going in for ambulatory care sensitive conditions Mm -hmm. or preventable um, Mm -hmm. events. And so that was work among older adults who were low income mm-hmm. and all on Medicaid. So they all had access to health insurance. They were duly mm-hmm. enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid. But only some of them uh, received SNAP benefits. And as mm-hmm. I said, the participation rate for older adults is around 40%. It's very low. Mm-hmm. So the people who received SNAP benefits were actually less likely to utilize healthcare services. They were less likely to go to the emergency room or the hospital. Yeah. And if they did go to either of those, they had shorter hospital stays and fewer visits to the emergency room. Mm-hmm. And they were less likely to be admitted to the nursing home as well. And if they did, had shorter stays. And then what I thought was really interesting actually about that study was that we actually also looked among SNAP participants to Uh see whether benefit amounts prevented those same health outcomes. And so among the people who already were enrolled, the only people who have higher SNAP benefits are actually the lower income people or Mm -hmm. those with kind of a higher poverty Mm -hmm. level. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so we actually found that the people who got higher benefit levels 
we're actually less likely to be admitted to the nursing home, suggesting mm -hmm. that just kind of giving people a little extra money. I mean, we're talking about like 10, 20, 30 dollars a month. It's not even a huge amount. Mm -hmm. And when you factor in the cost of a hospitalization, right. an emergency department visit, which right. can be thousands, we're talking about a pretty dramatic idea yeah. that you could potentially at least prevent some of these really right. costly health outcomes right. by very simple strategies of just giving people what they need to eat a regular balanced diet. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. You know, and it makes me think about that for those people that were included in your study that you wonder if they were then using some of those funds maybe for things like medications right. or yeah. their or utility bill or, right, yes. That, yes. that also facilitated them right. being able to yeah. stay out of the hospital. Yeah. So right. it speaks to that yeah. ripple effect of... Um, and you get to choose your food. You so unlike... Yeah like a food as medicine approach, there, it still allows for kind of the freedom and dignity of what you the like. selection, what, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 And there's great. even evidence to support that idea from back in 2009, there was an expansion of SNAP. Mm -hmm. And so there was a study that showed just that idea that people who got that boost of benefits mm -hmm. were actually more likely to pay more for education and transportation mm -hmm. for other things they wanted or needed for their household that would help them in the long term yeah. because they didn't need to spend as much money on their food needs. Yeah. Um, and we found improved cardiometabolic health outcomes as a result of those changes. Yeah. So. Amazing. Yeah. So you've obviously been very well trained and have had this really you know wonderful career to date uh, doing doing this important work. What do you think we need to do to prepare the next generation of people that are going to tackle these these really tough questions? How, how should we get them ready for the work? That's a great question. So I think one of the things that I wish I had better training on in my formal education and training was in addressing the messiness that comes with mm. these research questions uh, and mm. that I'm asking the kind of questions that will never be answerable with like a classic RCT. Mm -hmm. Just for anyone who may not know, a RCT stands for a randomized controlled trial in which you're controlling who gets the treatment versus who doesn't. And okay. I think so often in clinical research, we focus on a, mm. t like specific methods or specific, you know, approaches that we value more than others, right? Mm -hmm, in kind mm -hmm. of the hierarchy of science and the evidence base, we sure. we value particular types of studies and approaches. And I think in reality, while they're really useful tools, it's not the only tool in our toolbox. Right. And we're doing ourselves a disservice by mm. not using all the tools that are out there to mm -hmm. answer these important research questions. That, you know, I, I think sometimes the most important research questions are the messiest ones. Yeah. It's not it's not a drug trial. It's right. not, you know. So it requires a very different approach and way of thinking about it. And I think the other thing is it requires a really deep understanding of the population. So sure. for me, you know, having grown up in a low-income household and knowing other families who are in that situation, yeah. I think that helped me to some extent, although you don't want to assume that your experience is right. the same as anybody else's. But I think just treating people with dignity and talking to enough people and understanding what their perspective is, mm -hmm. is really critical to helping you kind of do this work meaningfully. Whether you're a clinician or an educator or a policymaker or a researcher, just the idea of treating people with humanism is, I think, essential. Oh, that's terrific. So we like to take a, a trip virtually or in our imagination, to the homes of our of our guests to see what they may have on their vision boards that they have at home. And so wondering for you, when we think about the vision board that you may have 
What's your vision of the future of this line of research that you have been working in? I think there's there's so much potential here, right, in that I think for a long time we've thought about economic conditions as separate from health, right? Like so many programs are already out there to improve economic well-being, like mm-hmm. SNAP and Medicaid and Social Security and minimum wage laws. But we haven't always necessarily linked those with improved health outcomes. And so we don't necessarily then understand exactly how they work or who would benefit most from these types of programs or how they should be implemented if we actually want to target health in any strategic way. Hmm. And so I think there's a lot of work that could be done there. And the pandemic has provided us with new opportunities that we didn't have before to ask those types of questions because so many of those programs were expanded Mm -hmm. or changed really dramatically so you can evaluate the policy changes and see what their health outcomes were. But I think that that line of work is really sorely needed. Yeah. yeah. Well, we like to end with asking, what's one of the most valuable pieces of advice you've ever received? Could it be career advice or life advice? So, I mean, one life advice, maybe there's two, really. Okay. I can sneak them both in. Sure. <laughs> one was from my mom, which was, you know, to just treat people with dignity, like say hello to people you meet and you never know who just needs you know, friendly face. Mm -hmm. And the other is the idea that you should do what you really love and what gets you out of bed every morning and you'll want to do for years to come Mm -hmm. because especially in research, you might be doing something for years. (laughs) You might get rejected over and over. (laughs) Speaking for my own self. (laughs) And so doing something that Mm -hmm. you still will love coming back to after that third rejection, (laughs) I think is really important in this process. Well, many thanks to Dr. Laura Samuel for her invaluable insights and expertise, which have greatly enriched our discussion on health disparities during this podcast episode. For our listeners, check out our website, nursing.jhu.edu backslash aging fast and slow for the articles and resources referenced in the episode. Have comments, questions, or guest suggestions? Reach out to us at agingfastandslow at jhu.edu. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend, rate it, or write us a review. Special thanks to Jennifer McCord for editing and sound design, Rafe Reggie and Florentina Costaca for technical expertise, Brian Fitzek for production, and Tim Carl and Danielle Kress for web design. See you next time on Aging Fast and Slow. Thank you.